is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, October 14, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. Producing from the Schwenk Studios in the foothills of Connecticut is Taylor Schwenk. Sarah Abbott's working from the Sarah Abbott Studios someplace in the Bristol area. And I'm Buster Olin in a hotel in Bristol. This week I've mentioned to you that I've been on baseball tonight every night and will be on there again uh, this evening. All right, in baseball yesterday, a slim schedule because we got word early on that the Yankees and Guardians game was postponed, which means that those two teams could wind up playing four straight days. We'll be talking with Carl Ravitch about the potential implications of that. The one game we did get to see was a great game, Astros-Mariners in Houston. And early on, the Astros took the lead against all-star starter Luis Castillo. The pitch coming. Swinging a high fly ball deep into right field. That is way, way up there. Down the line, sailing, and she's gone. Home run by Kyle Tucker. It was Dave O'Brien on ESPN Radio. You know, we all wondered after that brutal loss with uh, in game one of this series with Jordan Alvarez hitting the three-run homer, could the Mariners get off the mat? So when the Astros scored first in game two, I'm kind of thinking, oh, boy, here we go. You know, they're going to roll on to victory here. No, that didn't happen. The Mariners actually came back in game two. Sends up Dylan Moore, the right-hand batter. He's 0 for 1 with a ground out to third. Two down and a tie ball game. But Hanniger's the base runner at third for Seattle and a pitch. Swing and a line drive in the right field. Dropping. That's down for a base hit. And here comes the run. Hanniger is in to score, and that'll make it 2-1 to Seattle. Yeah, so the Mariners had a 2-1 to lead in the middle innings. Luis Castillo pitched great. Uh, good battle with Framber Valdez of the Astros. But that guy, that guy, Jordan Alvarez, did it again. Jordan Alvarez, 37 home runs in season, 97 RBIs. The pitch swing, and there's a high fly left field. Driven back. Now it's headed for the Crawford boxes, and it's gone. He's done it again. Alvarez to the opposite field, a two-run shot here in the sixth inning. And that probably was the moment when, for me, uh, and probably for many, many other people, you're like, oh, okay, there's a clear comp for Jordan Alvarez when we talk about uh, his ability as a hitter, his uh, his feel for the moment, his ability to hit under big pressure. And we're going to be talking about that a lot on today's podcast. So the Astros had a 3-2 to two lead, bottom of the eighth inning, Jeremy Payne, you got on first base, and Scott Service, the Mariners manager, wanted nothing to do with Alvarez. He just like four, held up four fingers, waved him on to first, go ahead. We're not pitching to that guy. They pitched to Alex Bregman. Here's what happened. And the pitch. Swing and a line drive in the right field, down for a base hit. Payne hitting third. He's rounding. Hanniger up and gunning. It comes through, and he's going to dive in safe at the plate without a tag. The throw is late, and the run scores. And the Astros get a huge run there. Now on top, 4-2. to two, Bregman rifling a base hit to right field. And here's what it sounded like in the top of the ninth inning. Two down, two and two. Presley fires. Swung on and missed. He struck him out with a curveball. And that's another victory for the Houston Astros. They have put a headlock on this division series. They win this ball game four to two, and now have a two nothing lead in the best of five, going to Seattle. 
After the game, Mariners manager Scott Service talked about the Mariners' inability to hold a lead. Yeah, you got to finish out. There's no question. It's difficult to do that on the road in the playoffs. There's no no question about it. You got to make pitches. You got to make plays. Um, and you know you got to give the other team credit if they're able to come back. And um, you know, I, no one else you want me to say. Um, you know, I just we have played very good baseball. Um, I do know how hard it is to win on the road, and it'll be very hard for them to win in Seattle. I will tell you that because I know what's going to be like when our crowd gets going on Saturday night. Saturday afternoon, I guess. That'll be a lot of fun to watch. (laughs) The the crowd in Seattle for game three. But I completely agree with Scott Service. You know, I thought the Mariners played well in those first two games, but they lose both games against a really great team. Here was Dusty Baker talking about Jordan Alvarez. Well, hey, I mean, he's a big boy. And uh, I call him Grande. And, uh, you know, he comes up big. And, uh, you know, we love having him at the plate. You know, he likes to be in the big moment. And uh, uh, his concentration and, and discipline is, uh, is way ahead of his, of his years. And, uh, yeah, we just love having him. Yeah, and right there. It, it's funny, but the way people talk about him and the words that they use, it, it feeds into the comp that we're going to be talking about uh, on the podcast today. Shortstop Carlos Correa told El Nueve Dia that he is going to opt out of his deal with the Twins. This is not a surprise. I think everybody in baseball assumed that he was going to do that at the end of the year. The only question was whether or not the Twins were going to trade him in midseason. This is part of the reason why I think Carlos was on the pregame show with TBS yesterday, beginning the process of promoting himself. Paul Hembikides will be with us today a bit to talk about where Correa stands in the free agent market. And for Hembo, it's clear where his ranking is among Dansby Swanson and Xander Bogarts and Trey Turner. The Rockies are keeping manager Bud Black, but they fired hitting coach Dave Magadan, and uh, they made some other changes with their coaching staff as well. The other series in the National League, they had travel days, the Phillies and the Braves in Philadelphia. Here's Brian Snitker, who has not yet named who his number three starter is going to be. That's kind of like why we're still in discussion of what we're going to do because we're weighing all those variables in everything. You know, there's, I guess, pros and cons for both ways. I don't know that there's a right or wrong way, but um, that's one of the reasons why we're still discussing it because we're, you know, even this afternoon, we're going to go over all those different scenarios. And I would assume that by now they've determined whether or not they're going to start Spencer Strider or Charlie Morton. My guess is they'll start Charlie Morton. Uh, and then have Strider available coming out of the bullpen. We'll have to wait and see. Phillies manager Rob Thompson talked about the off day and whether or not it might help the struggling Reese Hoskins and Kyle Schwarber. Yeah, I think days off can help guys in a lot of different ways, but uh, I think Hoskins is getting close. He's starting to loft a lot of balls and, and square up balls. He's just not squaring them up enough. But um, And Schwarber's, I think, is just caught in between a little bit. He's just maybe trying to do a little bit too much. Um, so, yeah, maybe a day off helps those guys a lot. Aaron Nola starts for the Phillies in game three against the potent Atlanta lineup. Just got to execute my pitches, honestly. I've seen them a lot. They've seen me a lot. Um, I mean, you've heard the guys talk about it when they've been up here. we played each other uh, quite a bit. So um, I know what they got. They know what I have. But it all comes down to executing all my pitches, and uh, hopefully I have uh, all of them working. The Dodgers and the Padres will play game three tonight. Bob Melvin, Padres manager, talked about Manny Machado. He's very much the guy 
you know, so to speak, in the clubhouse. We have other guys too, you know, Joe obviously and Craig Stammen and, you know, we have, we have a lot of high-profile guys. Jerks and Profar have some leadership qualities. Um, but Manny's the guy. So, you know, it, it's tough enough being the guy on the field and having to perform. It's also even more difficult to be the guy in the clubhouse. And he does it like he does on the field. There's an easiness to it. He's easy to talk to. Everybody likes him. He's very friendly. Um, so he's, he's the same in the clubhouse as he, is, as he is on the field. Tony Gonsolin will start for the Dodgers. Blake Snell for the Padres. And he spoke with the reporters yesterday. I like pitching at home, period. Uh, pitching at home is always a, a great time, uh, especially because even when you try to not feel the energy, you still feel it, and it makes you want to be better. Um, but definitely being a year two, I think everyone gets more comfortable. Um, usually the first time you're at a place, you're learning so many things, and you're thinking about so much stuff that you're not able to focus on, on the things that you should be focusing on that should, be, that should come really easy to focus on, but it's just it's hard because your mind wanders. Um, to our set, you know, this is my second year here. I feel comfortable. I know everybody. I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm just trying to prove to myself with how good I am. So um, it's just it's comforting in that where I can just be in my own space and and just focus on my craft. Taylor, what else you got? I think Blake Snell's mind was wandering during that answer there. Uh, that was funny. Uh, the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny now twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, Mina Kimes, you know her. She's an ESPN NFL analyst. Uh, every Tuesday, she's going to highlight the winners and losers from the weekend with Dominique Foxworth of the Dominique Foxworth show. And then later in the week on Thursday, she is going to preview the NFL slate. That is the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny. Listen wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN. Get great deals and the hottest tickets. Experience it live. You can now stream the most Major League Baseball games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers... Thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your Major League Baseball games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. That's D-I-R-E-C-T-V.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip codes and requires choice package. This is the numbers game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Buster. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm fired up because we got three games, and the cool thing is with the three games today, it, it's, it, it, none, no season will end today, right? But we're going to find yeah. a lot out about those uh, those particular series, so it's going to be great. I, I do feel like that uh, while the series between the Astros and the Mariners is going back to Seattle, I have a hard time believing that the, the Mariners are going to be able to push the rock all the way back up the hill and we're going to remember this series for the turning point that was Alvarez's home run in game one. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, I'll bring a number here in a moment that will show just how 
atypical and historic everything he's done has really been. But, you know, we talked about it yesterday. This team is fearless. I think if any team could come back in a situation like this, it would be this team. But the Astros are so good. You just watch that team. You see Jordan come to the plate in a key moment, and you realize there's a reason that this team has been so good for so long. Yep. It, uh, it, it, it is tremendous. And the other thing, too, we were talking about this, and it's sort of borne out by the fact that Carlos Correa was doing the pregame show, and he's interviewing Jeremy Pena. It really is amazing how the Astros have continued to have success despite the fact that their general manager moved on, you know, Jeff Luno being suspended and then fired. Uh, A.J. Hinch, their manager, uh, you know, George Springer, uh, Garrett Cole, <laughs> Carlos Correa, and yet they, they just keep on winning. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is two. So speaking of Jordan, he hit another go-ahead home run last night with the team trailing, this time in the sixth inning. Of course, he had the walk-off home run in game one, also while trailing. He became the only player in postseason history to have multiple go-ahead home runs in the sixth inning or later with his team trailing. That's in a postseason career, and he's done this in back-to-back games. So again, Plenty of credit to the Mariners trying to have short memories, all of that. But they have witnessed something that had never happened before. The fact that a guy has had two home runs like this, and they just so happened to both be against them in back-to-back games. Number two. Number two is five. So talking about the Astros and that feeling of an inevitability, which you get when Jordan Alvarez comes to the plate and you get when you watch this team, they have made five straight ALCS appearances entering 2022. That is tied with the 1971-75 A's for the second longest streak of consecutive LCS appearances. The only team to be in the LCS in more consecutive years was the Braves, in 1991 to 99, they were in eight straight. So if the Astros win one over the weekend, between now and when I talk to you next, Buster, it will be six straight, which will be the second longest streak and the longest streak by any AL team. Number one. Number one is we'll go with two and out. So we talked a lot about how important it is to out-homer your opponents in the postseason. And I always keep track of this this trend over the course of the playoffs. Actually goes back to uh, yesterday. Boog Shambi is the one who really likes to hammer this home. And him asking me over the last few years has led to me looking it up every, every day of the postseason after the games are over. So teams are now 8-4 and four when out-homering their opponents this postseason, which is actually two more losses than we saw all of last postseason mm. when teams went 25-2. and two. We'll see where we end up, but with those four, the four losses, it's very interesting because the Phillies are 2-0 and o when being out-homered. So two of those losses 
were Philly's opponents. One game against the Braves, one game against the Cardinals. And I was looking into this because I was curious. The most wins when being out-homered in a single postseason by a team is four by the 2014 Giants, which is probably the team I would have guessed if you had me say, hey, what team managed to do that? Again, out-homering your opponent is a better way to ensure wins. It is interesting that for the proponents of small ball, the Phillies have been able to make it work a decent amount so far this postseason. Sarah, uh, you and I, I think some of the most enjoyable times I've had with you uh, were during the winter time when you've gone up to my old high school, North Mount Herman School. It's in Western Mass. Um, and, you know, not only did you have the hot stove event, but we got to go and do some classes and speak to kids. Uh, one of the folks who was with us, uh, and that was Galen Carr, who's a director of player personnel for the Dodgers. Uh, and uh, we heard from him yesterday. Give a listen. Hey, Sarah, Galen Carr here with the Dodgers. Just wanted to let you know I was thinking of you and sending my best along with all your fans out here in L.A. as you're facing up to this next challenge. Also, just how much I appreciate you making the trip out to Western Mass every winter to star in our off-season hot stove discussions at NMH. Your energy and passion for baseball has just been the best addition to our winter conversations out there. So thank you for that. And your tweets, um, I really do love these daily reminders for us to take a step back and just admire baseball. It's like, you know, isn't that why we all got into this game in the first place as kids? Keep them coming, Sarah. We'll be thinking of you. And of course, we'd absolutely agree that baseball is the best. Yeah, Galen, uh, of course, he also, uh, like me, is a graduate of North Mount Herman. Um, and I remember telling him about you before you came in the first time. And uh, he remarked to me after after that how, how much fun it was to work with you. One of the one of the reasons why I wanted you to go up there, because I you know knew that there would be all kinds of young women who would want to ask you questions about, you know, your path that you chose. Um, when you get those questions, what do you tell folks? When I get those questions, first of all, Thank you so much. And thank you, Galen. That's so wonderful to hear from him. And thank you for setting that up. To answer your question, I mean, whenever people ask me about being a woman in sports or being, you know, the only one in the room, anything like that, I always say that it really shouldn't matter. You know, I've been so lucky to really never encounter any moments where I felt like it hindered me. I've encountered plenty of people who I knew thought I didn't know what I was talking about, but I knew I did. And so it didn't matter. And I think as long as you really have that passion for what you're doing and you care about what you're doing, it really shouldn't matter. And you shouldn't let that impede you in any way. And that's what I've said when I've gotten that question in the past is that you know, it's only a hindrance if you stop and think about it and sort of get in your own head because you deserve to be there. Whatever room we're talking about, whatever situation, conversation we are talking about, and you do deserve to be there. You know what you're talking about. That's why you've gotten to the point you're at, whoever we're talking about. And so it just, it shouldn't even be a thing. I know that I am lucky 
that I've never encountered a situation where I was uncomfortable. I know that's not the case for everybody, but that has been my experience. Yeah, I, I agree with it. It's funny. We, we had parallel responses to that. I'd get asked, uh, uh, you know, people would uh, make remarks to me about Jess Mendoza when I worked on Sunday Night Baseball. And I'm like, you know, we're, she and I are exactly the same boat. Uh, cause they would say she never played. I'm like, well, I didn't play. I go and I talk to people and I ask questions and then I relate what I hear and what I've learned on air. And it's, it's really not that complicated. Like, and I never like, <laughs> there's, it, it always seemed kind of silly to me. And even the whole thing about you didn't play, I would relate the fact, yeah, they're pitchers on air or talk about hitters and they're, they don't yes. really, they didn't do that. And they're pitchers that talk about it you know, or hitters that talk about pitchers. So anyway, it really is about the the information that you dig out, the way that you present the information, um, and your passions always come through on that. So thanks for uh, today, Sarah, and I will talk to you Monday. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. Appreciate it. All aboard. It's the Rabbi Train with Carl Ravitch. Carl Ravitch, Rabbi Train is in Philadelphia, Rabbi, because you're the play-by-play man on ESPN Radio for the series between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Atlanta Braves, um, which is an intriguing series. And we'll get to the question that sort of hangs over that series today. How are you doing? Doing great. It's a great series. It's a great city. They haven't had playoff baseball here in Philadelphia, obviously, in 11 years. You got Aaron Nola on the mound, who has been on this team longer than anybody and waited longer than anybody, and is uh, is a Cy Young candidate. And the Braves got off the mat against the other Cy Young candidate for the Phillies and did a really good job. So it's an intriguing series. This place, with all due respect to the Houston's and Seattle's of the world, will match them for difficult places to go into. You know, for a visiting team, so the atmosphere will be amazing. It's a great day for baseball. In spite of the fact that one game was rained out, now you got another game today to add to the list. So it's a really, really great day. It poured here last night, Buster. I mean, it was sideways. You know, we have a reservoir outside of our hotel window that was probably 12 feet deep that this morning feels like it's about 18 feet deep. And today the sun is out, and everybody is excited about baseball on a Friday afternoon here in Philadelphia. You know what's cool about today's games, uh, because there are going to be three games today, is that in each case – uh, the there will not be a team going home. Like we're in the middle of division series. Yes. They've all started, but you've got one one in the two National League series, and you have one zero in the American League series. It's uh, the Yankees and the Guardians. It'll it'll be a fun day, you know. Yeah, a, a, no, a lot of no I, coming at it today. Hundred percent, and you know what, what we the lack of intrigue in the wild card series, which was so fascinating because of the road team success. Um, having teams be one one in the best of five sort of giving life to the concept that maybe the Padres can beat the Dodgers. You know, maybe the Phillies can knock off the defending World Series champions. I I think to win one of those two games on the road obviously lends a lot of credibility to that argument because if it didn't happen, I think a lot of folks would quickly jump into, well, that series is over. Can we get to the league championship series? So, yeah, the idea that it's 1-1, and at least in our series, there's so much mystery around uh, we'll get to the game three starter it's not like the, the Phillies have a have a lockdown game four starter so there's a tremendous amount of pressure on Aaron Nola today and the Braves don't know who they're even going to start in game three so there's there's just a lot of things up in the air that when you talk about potential 
World Series teams, they don't generally have all of these questions around them. No, you're 100% right. And it does, it feels like we're at a tipping point uh, across the baseball landscape as we're going today into today. There's one thing that has absolutely been determined. It's very interesting, uh, you know, to, to watch that game yesterday in Houston and to see the pregame and postgame show and to have my own thoughts. It feels like, Carl, that a lot of the baseball world landed in the exact same place, uh, you know, I, as we talked about Jordan Alvarez, you know, on the pre and post game show on TBS, they were talking about instead of Jordan, it's your daddy. You had uh, Dusty Baker, uh, you know, refer to him as grande because of his size and all of it, you know, each phrase you're like, yeah, he's big poppy. He's David Ortiz. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, you exactly. Know, I mean, that's, huge uh, left-handed hitter and, and with with such skill and such ease, some comfort level, such comfort level in big moments. Yes, without question. I mean that that's my comp, um, and, and a lot of that comes from the fact that it is the postseason, and he is, you know, very early on in this postseason carrying that team. You you have the the magical moment that Ortiz had against Torrey Hunter's team when he flew over the. Uh, Red Sox bullpen uh, wall. You have the magical moment where where he takes the Mariners out for a game-winning walk-off homer, and then you continue it. You know that was the thing about Ortiz in the postseason is it, it wasn't a one-off. It continued, and yep. Alvarez hitting a homer in the second game is another one of those. This is David Ortiz because he's now done at two games, and and let's see what happens in game three when he's got to go on the road. Um, David Ortiz obviously wasn't a great fielder, but there were times where he was pressed into play prior to the universal DH where he made the plays. Ortiz was clutch offensively. He did enough defensively. Yesterday, after Alvarez hit the homer, he then had to make a very difficult play in left field, a kind of a snow cone catch. He made the play. So, yeah, there are incredible similarities between the two of them, and I remember um, you know, kind of getting out there when we were having mid-season conversations about MVPs, and rather than go with the obvious, I was I was always kind of sticking up for Pete Alonso in the National League and Jordan Alvarez in the American League, um, and that was more out of I know what this guy is capable of. Um, he was going to be in the home run derby prior to getting hurt, um, and he was hurt. So he wasn't, uh, but he's, he is that guy. He's that presence. He's, he's not as blinged out or gregarious as Ortiz, but uh, having been in that clubhouse and seen the way that others respond and react to him, he, he's got that Ortiz feel to him. And it's, it's great for Houston, you know, and I think, I think a lot of folks look at Houston and be like, Oh my God, they're doing it again. Like they don't ever lose. And that was such a, such a game-changing win we may look back on at the end of uh, October, early November, when he hit that walk-off against the Mariners to say that was it. That was that's what got them the, the energy they needed to to win a World Series. I don't know how you watched uh, that game yesterday, Carla. Where you watched the game? I know that when the uh, TBS showed that shot of Scott Service ordering the intentional walk and the expression on his face, I was in my hotel room and I just laughed out loud. Like I, I think Scott Service is an excellent manager, but his like I'm not. I'm gonna paraphrase. If he if there was a thought balloon over his head in that moment, it was. And I got to clean this up a little bit. I'm not dealing with that crap anymore. Get him. I'm. We're moving on. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you see that his expression? 
I, I did. And, and, it, you know, and a lot of us, of course, you know, we'll, 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 man, we'll try to pre-manage as opposed to, boy, why did he do that? Because that's never fair to a manager. Um, and that was one of those, which people asked about Aaron judge all year. And of course, you know, that look, there, there's, until he proves that, that he's not going to do it every time he's up in a big spot. And the Robbie Ray thing is one of those Scott service decisions that, uh, you know, are going to, that's Joe Morgan for the Red Sox and Pedro. Like there's always going to be something. And if this doesn't go well for the Mariners, um, that that's, that's one of those things that people are going to remember that they brought in Robbie Ray, who threw a fastball. He got away with threw another one and it was destroyed. Um, you know, that may be the inefficiencies of the Mariners' bullpen, et cetera, but that's the call you made, and it backfired. Like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. That's – he ain't doing that. I, he's he's not going to make that mistake again, and we'll see what happens when there are runners on. What do you do? So, as you and I talk, it's about 8.15 Eastern time, and by the time this podcast is posted, uh, we'll already know what the decision from Brian right. Snitker is about who his Game 3 starter is going to be. So, I'm not going to ask you to predict or, you know, which guy would you go through or either one. Um, it is, uh, I think, in the end, it's going to be a crossroad decision because you have two distinct weapons. You have the old pro, Charlie Morton, who's so great in postseason in his history, and then you have this dynamic talent in Spencer Strider striking out everybody. Um, I don't know what the Braves are going to do. I, I think the uh, bold move would be to go with the youngster, right, with that yep. electric fastball, feeling like he's going to dominate the lineup. It is. Um, you know, and the the day of travel, uh, another day to recover from the oblique injury, we, we talked about it, and you're absolutely right. We'll, we'll know the answer when people are listening to this. I can tell you that having sat with Brian uh, prior to game two, Snicker, there was there was not necessarily an answer in his mind, and, and I don't mean that there were like two great options, and they may both be great in the end. You don't know, but he was he and Kranitz and the organization were were really struggling, and you know, and and when Buck Showalter made the decision. Well, the DeGrom start is going to have to do a great deal with what happens in the game before. It didn't even appear as if, well, if Atlanta comes back and it's 1-1, do you, do you then say, well, we're going to go with Morton because it's another, another day to avoid Strider and let him rest? And, and that wasn't even part of the equation. Remember how definitive you know, Buck was, we're not going to announce our next starter because it yep. really has to do with the outcome? That's not, that wasn't the case. And, uh, you know, I know there's, there's, there's not an effort on your half. You have to get a prediction. If it were me, I, I would probably start Morton because if you do start Strider, um, you know, then you bring in Charlie into the piggyback role. Strider has relieved, even though he's been outstanding, he is younger. He seems like he'd be better equipped to do it, but there's, there is absolutely no consensus, at least as of this morning, and I'm sure that there's going to be consensus in in which way to go. But I, I would think you're going to piggyback, and it's a word we haven't heard thrown around by the Braves, that they're such a conventional organization that while many other teams say, yep, game three is a piggyback game, they, 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 they haven't said that. They, they haven't even opened up the idea to that's how we're going to approach this, but that's what it feels like to me. Yeah, and I think that probably part of their internal conversation is if we are going to piggyback, is it better to start with the guy who's thrown 101 
Or is it better to start yep. with the old pro who's going to be spinning breaking balls? You know, would you rather yeah. start with the fastball uh, and then come back with a guy throwing slop in a really high adrenaline atmosphere? So, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see where uh, where they land on this. Because you called this, I want to get your opinion on it because we've been arguing about it the last three days. And I got the input from Hall of Famer Chipper Jones with a text. I asked him which of those plays was better, Dansby's catch or Riley's catch. And Chipper texted back. Dansby's catch because he had zero angle and then I could feel like in reading his text that he caught himself and was like yeah can can, rather than rank them one and two can I have one a and one b (laughs) as you you know it's kind of a fun uh, baseball conversation which one do you think was more impressive well you know I'll be honest I think the one that was that was more impressive was Swanson's and I and I say this for one reason and one reason only He, he kept looking out to see if anybody else was helping him. In yeah. Riley's case, it was uh, there's nobody else there, so either I'm gonna I'm gonna make the catch or it's gonna be a foul ball. In Swanson's case, a it's fair, so that means there's base runners. Um, my left hand right if it falls, if it hits, yeah, I couldn't if it see. Falls, right, you're running the risk. Of, and again, I don't want to dismiss the tarp, but you're running the risk of banging into a player. And we saw what happened in Toronto, you know, with Springer and Bichette. So you have that. And I swear to God, Buster, when you look at Dansby's sway, face when he comes up, he's looking at uh, the left fielder and saying, "Like, wh- where were you? What happened?" Like, and he kept going. So I'd say it was Swanson's. They were both very similar. They were both incredible. But if you're ranking them that way. I think the the idea that there's other men that you could bang into that the ball is going to drop and it's in fair play and runners are going to be moving around um, made, made it made it uh, you know more more difficult more challenging although they were both very similar plays they were they were incredible Swanson just keeps coming up and you know this from your years you know watching him at Vanderbilt etc he's just sort of got that it thing he does have some jeter in him with the big yep. hits and the big defensive plays and, you know, he's, he'll dive into the stands. He'll get dirty. So sometimes it won't look great, but he's got, he definitely has that. No, there, there's no question about it. And, and, you know, I heard his description of the play uh, and I think you, you hit on it. I, I think that he was absolute. There was a part of his brain that was absolutely coated in fear of those uh, of oncoming Eddie Rosario. I don't think he was worried about Michael Harris the second, but I think he was looking and looking and looking for Eddie Rosario to see if he was going to be there. Uh, and, and that was a huge factor in the way that he approached that 100%. play. What was it? Two or three times. And, and you know, because Dansby's smart enough to know if he highlights that in describing the play, what was going through his brain, then it's going to come up as a rip of his teammates and he wasn't going to handle it that way. But that was top of mind for him. And so for him to make that play, in the midst of that fear, I agree with you. I, I thought it was more impressive. Our colleague Jessica Mendoza disagreed with me. P- she picked Riley. I put it out on Twitter. Twitter had Riley's play better, but I'm with you uh, that uh, yeah, it was Dansby's play. All right. Uh, you were around the Padres over the weekend as they beat the Mets in that series in City Field. I walked away saying, you know what, there, there's something might be going on here because they just felt so loose. What did you think? Yeah, I do. I mean, look, I think the idea that they went in there and beat Max Scherzer right away fortified that opinion about themselves. Um, Bob Melvin told us you were there. Like, look, this is a this is an entirely new season. We flipped the script. All numbers go back to zeros. The Jerickson Profars, the Trent Grishams, um, look, Jay Cronenworth the other night, the people that have struggled, we, we wiped the slate clean. And that sounds, you know, a lot simpler 
than it really is when you're talking about the mentality, psychology of a player. Because if game one doesn't go well, then then the slate hasn't changed. It may say zeros up there, but I'm still not good. I'm not hitting the ball. I'm not driving the ball. I'm not getting on base. I'm not bringing runs in. And to have things go so well with the four homers against Max Scherzer, then you start to believe the statement. Like, you know what? He's right. And Melvin has has been right about a few things for that team. And those are the types of things managers need from their players. They hear a message, and then all of a sudden they believe the message when it starts to come to fruition. That happened in game one. Um, I, I think we're all being sort of tapped on the shoulder and reminded Manny Machado is as good a baseball player yes. as there is in baseball. I mean, he is yep. just that guy. And he's matured. He's a leader. He's loving life. So uh, we're, we're just... We're reminded of that guy over there. He is as good, if not better, than Paul Goldschmidt. He, he can he can be as dominant as Jordan Alvarez. He can carry a team like Aaron Judge. Like he is that player, and this postseason is reminding us. So now you have the the underdogs in San Diego and Philadelphia going back home and feeling really good about themselves. And yes, I there is something there. Let's see what Joe Musgrove can do. Can you repeat that again? But it is fascinating, you know. The dragon showed up in the Yankees uh, series against the Guardians. But the dragon, as you know, thanks to Peter Seidler, is the Dodgers. And here's an opportunity for the Padres to do a little damage against the dragon being the Dodgers. Yeah, we talk about players and, and postseason pressure and stress. Manny Machado looks so relaxed to me. I, I mentioned to you guys uh, after game one of that series of the against the Mets, when he hit that home run off Max Scherzer, that it looked to me like he was happy Gilmore running into his tee shot. Like he just looked like, <laughs> I'm going to just crush this ball. And it's not something I'm, I'm accustomed to seeing, like that that kind of body language in a major league player. But that uh, that's kind of where Manny Machado is right now. Before we go, I wanted to get your take, because there's been so much conversation, especially early in the week, about Buck Walters' decision to have just Joe Musgrove check for foreign substances. He's got a lot of criticism from a lot of corners about that. What did you think? Yeah, look, I, I think he had no no choice. My yep. guess is, without having spoken to him, the question was, when do I do this? You know, we saw the balls, baseballs that he had starting in inning number one. Um, we heard throughout the entire series uh, from both sides about what other the other side might be doing. And you know what? Maybe maybe we're trying to benefit from the same advantage. If I say something, they're going to say something. But it, it, was, it was the John Farrell situation all over again. Uh, social media uh, serves very little purpose, uh, but one of them is certainly to stir the pot. And that night, you know, from Jump Street, uh, they were they were all over. It sounds weird. Joe Musgrove's ears. Uh, it, it, it was sort of the elephant in the room, and the room was the country. You know, it was being discussed not only in the in the rooms between the Mets and the Padres. It was out there. So, I, part of me thinks if I'm in that sh- if I'm in his shoes, I I'm aware of it. I'm also aware it's still a close game, and if we get to him, I don't have to do anything. If he starts to uh, pitch poorly, uh, it's going to take care of itself. We saw Blake Snell really struggle. You know, why did Blake Snell really struggle in the game that he had? So I, I think you, you kind of hold on to that card 
until, in your opinion, you need to play it. And obviously, in his opinion, that was the time that it needed to be played. I, I don't have a problem with it. He has every right to do it. Uh, I didn't react the way that most people did. However, I will say internally, and I think maybe you overheard this during a commercial break, but internally, once there was nothing that was on Joe Musgrove, you know, I think there was a momentum shift to, you know what, we're, we're kind of rooting for the team or the guy that was just accused of doing something wrong when, when he, he, according to the umpires wasn't. And that, that I think was the pervasive feeling like, Hey, if it proved to be correct and he had some stuff, then that's one thing. But the umpires did obviously a fairly extensive search and found nothing. And now you kind of see the entire school of public sentiment move over to his side. Like, yeah, I'll, we'll show you. You just accused us of something that we weren't doing. Now we're kind of all behind those guys. So I, I think that's what happened, and it just kept mushrooming from there. All right, Ravi, have a, uh, a fun time today. It's going to be a great game in Philadelphia, Braves and Phillies on ESPN Radio. Thanks, Buster. <clears throat> ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now, making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Allstate. <clears throat> ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now, making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Capital One. Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. And Hembo, of course, is Paul McKitty. He's a researcher at ESPN who's a honcho on the show. Get up, and he's the dad of two little girls, baby girls. Hembo, how you doing? Buster, I, I could not be better. Uh, I've been up since, you know, 3 o'clock this morning, like I always am, to do my job. But it was like, here we are, like, in the middle of the night, my wife and I are just having a conversation. The girls are screaming. Like, time doesn't exist anymore. Like, time is a flat circle in my life. Apparently these, you know, these girls don't come out of the womb with like their, you know, their, their clocks synced up. So like, they don't understand if it's dark outside, you know, your eyelids should be closed. Like someone, someone needed to tell me this before we decided to pop two of these things into the universe. Very nice. Okay. Well, (laughs) just to, you know, I'm going to just tell you that will continue until they're 18, about 18 or 19 years old. Like you'll, you'll, you'll wake up and you'll be like an old person and they'll be, you know, uh, through uh, teenage years, and you'll wonder what the hell happened. <laughs> That's exactly where I am with a 22-year-old and an 18-year-old. So I, I just, an update, have you had the moment where you go into, in, and you look over the edge of the crib, and you get the smile of recognition? Oh, the moment has not yet come. They okay. don't see well enough, I guess, or maybe they're just ignoring me, which they'll probably do also for the next 18 years. I, I want to hear it, because it's going to happen during this postseason, okay? You got it, bud. I can't wait. Yeah. All right, so uh, we were talking on baseball tonight uh, about how similar uh, Jordan Alvarez is to David Ortiz, and then, you know, I see your note this morning about the topics you want to hit on, and you're like, is Jordan Alvarez the next David Ortiz? Absolutely, yes. 
that's how I see it. I mean, this is a carry your lineup in the postseason kind of player. I mean, he's a singular talent buster. I guess in some ways he also reminds me a little bit of Barry Bonds, just in that he's a massive hulking person who clearly uses a small bat and just swats at the baseball and it flies off of his bat like it's a tennis racket. I've never seen anything like it. But I want to rewind just a little bit here. Because for the first half of this this season, it was Jordan Alvarez and not Aaron Judge that was the best hitter on the planet. And while Judge's second-half exploits, I think, very likely won him MVP in the American League, Alvarez is, once again, the most dangerous hitter in the game, Buster. Let's, let's look at the big picture, okay? He's 25 years old. His career slugging percentage to date is 590. The last left-handed hitter to say both of those things was Ted Williams. Ted Williams was the last person with that profile. So let's go back to our friend Aaron Judge who will play year one on a massive new contract next year at the age of 31. Alvarez, only, only of course, being in air quotes, $110 million for the next six years, the last of which will play at 31 years old. That is one of the best contracts or most team-friendly contracts in all of baseball. Yeah, uh, there's no doubt about it. How uh, I was mentioning to Carl uh, about uh, Scott Service's uh, order for the intentional walk. It just made me laugh out loud. I love, I love <laughs> Scott Service. Like, yeah, whatever. Just uh, you know, four fingers go. Like, I don't want to deal with this guy. And you know what? It was the right decision, even though it didn't work out. And Alex Bregman is an excellent hitter behind him. Like that's what made that decision so yep. astonishingly correct. There was not an open base. There was a runner on first. Bregman's an all star hitting right behind him, and it was still a no brainer. That's how hot he is right now. Yep. Yeah, yep. All right. Tell me about trends you're seeing in the postseason. So I've been absolutely blown away by the velocity that we've seen. Consider that yesterday in that Mariners game, Luis Castillo and Andres Munoz threw 90 fastballs, the slowest of which was 96.6 miles an hour, and the average of which was 98.4. And the Mariners lost league wide. Average fastball velo this postseason is 95.3. That's a number that has steadily increased every year since 2017. There have already been more pitches thrown 98-plus this postseason than all of last year. So that's new school baseball. But let's turn back time and do a little old school stuff here. The average starter has actually thrown 85 pitches this postseason and averaged 16 outs. Those are both on pace for the most since 2015. 59% of outs so far this postseason have come from starters. That number was only 48% over the previous two postseasons. Now, we might still be dealing in small samples here, or perhaps these guys have cooked up the numbers in all these front offices and said, you know, our starter, one of our three best starters, navigating the order for the third time through, still might be a better matchup than, say, our fourth or fifth best reliever in the fifth or sixth inning. That is a trend I am certainly hoping will continue. How about Framber Valdez's curveball yesterday? I mean, uh, that pitch is diabolical. It is, even though, you know, he didn't have a perfect outing, but just watching that game yesterday, that I just walked away going, oh, my God. Yeah, like, I'd seen it during the baseball. year, mm-hmm. and you watch him, but in it, you know, against a good team in the playoffs, and you have more focus and more time to focus on one pitch. I'm just watching that thing, and pretty amazing stuff. Uh, <clears throat> all right, so Carlos Correa, as we said at the top of the show, was announced that he is going to opt out of his contract. Uh, they asked me the question of baseball tonight, last night, which of these four high-end shortstops is going to get the biggest contract? Xander Bogarts, uh, Carlos Correa, 
Trey Turner, Dansby Swanson. What say you? I say the answer to that question is Carlos Correa. I understand why in, in previewing this class of shortstop, we sort of group everyone together. But Buster, what I don't quite understand is why he is not universally considered a prize of that group. I'll give you three reasons why I believe that's the case. The first of which is he's going to stay at the position the longest. He turned 28 three weeks ago. He's got 70 defensive runs saved for his career. The only shortstop with more since he debuted are Andrelton Simmons and Nick Ahmed. And those are players that are in the big leagues only because they can play shortstop. Secondly, it's a, it's a legit premium bat. My, my favorite stat cast metric to demonstrate quality of contact is expected WOBA. So th- over the last two seasons, this is where those four shortstops rank. All right, Correa's 20th, Turner's 47th, Bogarts is 77th, and Swanson is 95th. And Buster, when you put it all in a blender, what you get is a Hall of Fame smoothie. All right, so Correa just finished his age 27 season. For his career, he has generated 32 offensive war, 13 defensive war. What I'm going to do for you is read a comprehensive list of shortstops with at least 30 and 10 through this point in their careers, Buster. This is the list. Joe Cronin, Robin Yount, Ripken Jr., and Carlos Correa. Buster, what do those first three shortstops all have in common? Well, I know this. Uh, any list that it includes Cal Ripken, like you're over the moon, okay? That's, <laughs> that's what I do know. Tell me what they have in common. They're all Hall of Famers. I, be, I believe that Carlos Correa is a legit Hall of Fame talent. The only blemish so far on his resume, of course, aside from the you know, sign-stealing scandal, is some questionable health. And I obviously don't have access to his me- medical records. But I'll tell you what, that profile as a player, as a, as a shortstop that can do both, is one that I would be very comfortable giving a $200-plus million contract to for sure. What team will he sign with next year? I think he's going to sign with the Cubs. Uh, here's my thought process. Really? Yes, and here's why. So, often like to cite the John Lester signing as sort of the catalyst for the Cubs to reintroduce themselves to Major League Baseball as a legit contender. I think Carlos Correa could be that guy for them. There is no shortstop of the future, if you will, in the organization. They have enormous amounts of money to spend if they want to with the lack of future payroll obligations that are there. And I don't think they're going to be involved in the Aaron Judge sweepstakes. Obviously, he's going to command something like $300 or $400 million. But even as recently as last offseason, when Carlos Correa was a free agent, Cubs fans were singing to him at Christmas. They wanted him so badly. I could see him being sort of the, the, the new face of the franchise there signing a six, seven, eight-year deal with Chicago and making him sort of the first foundational piece of what might be a new rebuild. I'm going to guess the Chicago Cubs for Correa. No, you're wrong, and I'll tell you why. Because every day this summer is, despite the fact that, let's face it, the Cubs in 2022 were close to unwatchable. Like They were were not interesting at all, uh, you know, in terms of product and the results and the style of play and the whole thing. And they filled that ballpark every day. I think there's no pressure on that team to spend big money on any individual player. Um, you know, and the last guy they did that with, with Jason Hayward, just didn't work out. I don't think Jed Hoyer is going to dive into that pool. I would say this. I think your team, the Phillies, they're going to wind up with one of the two big guys, Correa or Turner. What do you think? I think you're absolutely right that the Phillies will be heavy in on the market here. But my guess is actually that they'll sign Xander Bogarts. And the reason I feel that way is because (laughs) – I'll tell you why. Dave Dombrowski obviously has a pre-existing relationship from their time in Boston. And secondly, 
that Finley's only like players that can't play defense. And Xander Bogarts, <laughs> who has historically been a subpar shortstop, that won't be a part of the calculus for the Phillies. This is the bat first team. This is how we built the program. And obviously in that ballpark especially, it works because it's a band box. So I, my guess is that the Phillies are in on the shortstop market. But Xander Bogarts is my guess. It really is fun to try to guess which uh, where each of these four guys are going to land, well, how the Dodgers will factor into this, you know, what, how the Red Sox will factor in the pressure on the Red Sox ownership. There's just a lot of there's a lot going on there. All right, Hembo, thanks for doing this. Later, friends. Get out of here, Hembo. Sick of Hembo. Mandy Bell covers the Cleveland Guardians for MLB.com, and of course, she's a close friend of our friend Sarah Langs. Uh, Mandy, how you doing today? I'm good, Buster. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, Guardians Yankees get that early news, the early rain out on Thursday. Advantage to whom? Because I, I sat on air last night. I actually think this is going to play potentially for the Guardians because they just think their pitching depth is much better than the Yankees. What do you think? I agree. I know there was a lot of uh, talk about how this could hurt the Guardians because the biggest benefit was being able to use and overuse Emmanuel Class A if you needed to. But I, I still think that it's going to benefit them because Class A has trained himself this year, unlike he had in the past, of being able to take the ball every single day. I know he's worked three straight games this year. He's worked four or five. I mean, it. maybe he's not available for all four, but uh, it wouldn't be surprising if he's efficient that he could make that work if they needed him to. Uh, and so this bullpen has been really excellent. It has yet to give up a run so far in the postseason. Uh, and they're, they're starting pitching. You have Shane Bieber going in game two, and you saw what he did in the wild card round. And uh, being able to get length out of any starting pitching in the postseason is extremely, one, rare, and two, crucial. So if they can get that out of him, uh, that really puts the bullpen in even a better spot moving forward. So honestly, with the questions that the Yankees have in their bullpen, I think it's something that will end up in the long run benefiting Cleveland. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, Aaron Savali will wind up, uh, if this series plays out five games, he winds up playing a, a potentially crucial role as the, the fourth starter for the Guardians. Tell me, give me the, in your eyes, an important guy in their lineup, because that seems to be the big question for the Guardians is will they score enough to win this series? Yeah, I mean, the obvious answer is always Jose Ramirez and him being that spark plug that they need. But honestly, I think it's going to be more the guys after him. You need Josh Naylor, you need Andre Semenos, you need like those two guys, especially to be sort of helping support Jose in a way, especially Naylor if he's in that uh, cleanup spot. I know against lefties, he might drop a spot or two, but uh, you really need to make sure that there's some sort of a threat behind him so that Jose can see something. It's so easy to pitch around him whenever everyone else is cold. And so um, for him to just not really see anything can be really difficult for this lineup. So I think Josh Naylor is extremely crucial. Um, we all saw what he was able to do against the Yankees in that short wild card round in 2020. Um, I know Cleveland fans are hoping that side of him breaks back out. Um, but then Andre Jimenez has been just such a key for this offense all year. And he gets into the postseason, has been really cold so far, had those five strikeouts in game two of the wild card series. Um, and so I think that those two bats are really, really big for them if they want to start turning things around. Yeah, watching uh, Jimenez bat uh, down the stretch, it surprised me, you know, how much he struggled and, and uh, how it seemed like that he regressed as the year went along. Um, I remember in 2017 when the Astros played the Yankees American League Championship Series, 
the Astros players who had a lot more experience that group did than uh, these Guardians do. Uh, by the end of game five, they were so unnerved by the Yankee Stadium crowd that Carlos Beltran held a team meeting and said, guys, calm down. Like, we'll be okay. And you heard that, you know, Brian McCann talked about it, how difficult the crowd was. And we're only one game in, and I do think that playing an afternoon game actually sort of mutes a crowd a little bit uh, in Yankee Stadium rather than playing a night game when everybody's lubed up. Um, <laughs> you know, with about their, more than their share of beer. Uh, tell me how your early read on how the Guardians are handling the crowd. I think it was definitely a factor in the first game. I, I, it's hard not to be because it's just such a different atmosphere. It's such an intense atmosphere. It's something that most of these guys, almost all of these guys had not experienced before. Uh, we all saw what happened back in April whenever Cleveland was in New York and how the crowd really got to them at that point. So uh, it's not surprising, but it also seems like this team is one that's able to make adjustments pretty quickly. And I do think that having this day game now would be a big adjustment. Um, and benefit Cleveland because, yes, it's a different type of a crowd. And two, whenever you have those rainouts, not everyone's able to make the schedule work. Not everyone can suddenly be available during a work day at one o'clock. So maybe it's not a completely packed house. Maybe it's a little bit of a less intense atmosphere. So I think that anything at this point that's causing the crowd to be a little bit less uh, rowdy than what it was on night one, I think that anything like that can work in Cleveland's favor. So I think that this is going to be something that benefits them. Uh, but I do think that they are, after getting the taste in game one of how intense it can be, uh, that sort of just got like the first baby steps out of the way. They're like, okay, now we know what we're dealing with and we can adjust and move forward. After Sarah posted her news on Twitter last week, you uh, posted uh, your effort uh, to help her out. Uh, you know, you you, uh, you know, record that note for us that we played on the podcast last week. Can you just go into more on, on what your plans are and how people can jump in? Yeah, it's nice to actually have a conversation with you about this and not be stuck in the Cleveland airport parking garage having to record this. <laughs> um, yeah, it's I mean, obviously, the biggest thing that everyone wants to do right now is help Sarah. The biggest thing Sarah wants is no help at all and to help others. So in the middle of this battle of making sure that both parties are met, we want to make sure she's taken care of. So we're going to have, and I'm going to go on record and say half of it going to her, even though she doesn't want to accept that, but half of it's going to her. The other half will be going to a charity that she chooses to make sure that ALS research is continuing and, and hopefully making some advances here. Because I mean, I keep saying it whenever she called me and told me about her diagnosis, obviously I have heard of ALS. Ever, uh, I mean, they, I, I think back to the ice bucket challenge a few years ago that was such a big thing that it it allowed people to really hear about it um and obviously working in baseball you know Lou Gehrig you know the story of Lou Gehrig um but I just I did not know the small details of what this this journey is like for everyone in the ALS community until she told me about it and I started learning more and so it's just so sh surprising to me how little the world knows about it when you think about how long it's been around um, and so I just want to raise as much awareness, especially as possible, just so people can understand what these uh, everyone who's dealing with this disease is going through. And then obviously raise as much money as possible to help everyone in this condition, because it just it sucks. It's honestly it's just not a, a, del a, a hand anyone wants to be dealt. So just as much as we can as possible. I have a GoFundMe link pinned to my Twitter page uh, at MandyBell02 that you can access it there. You can go on just GoFundMe's website and you can just search Let's End ALS 
ask for Sarah um, and that'll pop up right there. So as as much awareness as possible and money as possible is is the goal here. And she's turned you into a distance runner, as she referenced uh, last week. Um, A pretend one. We'll say that I'm trying to turn into one. Sarah's Um, a real distance runner, right? She's a real one. Yes. She's a real one. Uh, I know she loves the Disney half marathon. So uh, she's coming with me in January. The two of us are going to go down there and and I'll, I'll be running it and she'll be trying to will me on to, to finish the race. So uh, it'll be fun. I've uh, I played sports growing up where, you know, you train yourself to think, okay, running is a punishment. If you don't do well in the game the night before, Coach is going to tell you to go run laps, go do whatever. And so you've grown up hating running. And then you meet a, a psycho like Sarah who thinks running is fun and she doesn't even need music to listen to while she runs. She just. What? I didn't. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. She's oh crazy. <laughs> yeah. She just runs with just silence in her thoughts, which would drive me even more crazy. So um, I can't quite duplicate that, but I will at least do the running portion uh, in January. I need my headphones. She's crazy for that one. But uh, yeah, so uh, definitely an adjustment, but it's so much fun. Thanks, Manny. Yeah, thank you. Yankees manager Aaron Boone was on the Michael K show and he was asked the question whether or not the postponement will harm the Yankees in this series. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's both teams have to deal with it. You got to deal with different things that come up all the time in the, in the regular season and certainly in the postseason and it's how you handle those things. So, you know, we'll be ready to go tomorrow for an early one. Boone was asked about how much the loss of Scott Efros will hurt his bullpen. Yeah, it was a surprise and a blow, no question. You know, I think he was in a really important part of our bullpen and, you know, had dealt with the shoulder issue and came back and I thought was going to play a big role for us. Definitely a blow and, and one that, you know, I feel really bad for him because I know how excited he was or is to be here and be a part of this team. But also I know how excited he was to go compete and play a meaningful role in our postseason. And, and obviously that's going to go on hold. So we just try and kind of support him and know he's going to get right and better and it's an opportunity for someone else to pick up the slack it was a week ago that a chapman went awol and booney talked about chapman definitely disappointed i don't know how difficult of a decision necessarily for me you know one that i did mull over and really think about but just felt like it wasn't a good enough excuse and kind of feel like you know whatever circumstances a player's dealing with at this time of the year you know whatever kind of year you've had you know we need the all in or not he was asked about how close he was to picking nestor cortez to start game one over garrett cole No, I wouldn't say I was necessarily close. I Mm -hmm. would just say I've said going into this postseason that, you know, I feel like obviously we're dealing with some injuries. We've lost some guys. We don't have some guys fully back. But one of the areas I feel really good about is our starting pitchers. And I feel like our three starters, and I think even when you expand it to J-Mo and and even Herman, I feel like from a starting pitching standpoint, we match up really well with all the teams in the playoffs. So I looked at it as as kind of a good decision because of the year Nestor's put forth because of how – um, really all year, but then especially since he's come back off the IL, I just feel like we're working from a position of strength. So I just wanted to make sure that I didn't race to a decision. I wanted to talk to some people about it, let it breathe a little bit. And before I made what I thought was the best decision. Bleacher Tweets.
Buster, I've got a quick confession and a question for you. First of all, my confession is I didn't know that that uh, Yankees game was postponed. I was just living my life. I had meetings. I had another podcast. I went to the gym. I texted. I am such a moron. I texted Carl Ravage and Mandy Bell. Confession time. Enjoy the game tonight at like 630. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. I was just I was just in my own world, man. I had I had lots going on yesterday and uh, I was listening to Dave O'Brien and Marley Rivera on the radio. They did a great job with Astros Mariners like, oh, wait, can't wait to watch Yankees Guardians tonight. Oh, let me text Carl. I have a great call. And, uh, you know, they were gracious enough to not acknowledge that I said things like that. Wow. Tough, (laughs) tough, tough look for your guy, Buster. I thought you'd like that. Oh, yeah, that's like me when I go on vacation and I come back and I truly because and, and it's makes it's easy because all of my siblings they don't like sports mm-hmm. and they don't follow sports and then I'll come back after a week of vacation and I'll be like uh, oh wait what happened that guy's season ended with an injury and I'll be like a week behind the news and I'll have to go through and yeah. find stuff it's like Rip Van Winkle I know I know I was just I, I just had my mind on college football lines and meetings with my wow. bosses and going to the gym. I just was out of out of it. So uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny, too, because it would would theoretically be top of mind, given that you're in the same weather band that they have at Yankee Stadium. It wasn't it, <laughs> it wasn't was raining, raining yesterday. It, I don't, I, you know, I wasn't even keeping an eye on that. That shows you how, you know, what a different planet. Out of touch you were very nice. Oh, man. Uh, I <laughs> See, <laughs> and Hembo, Hembo will, will come. Like if Hembo did that, we would totally get it. Right. Uh-huh. You know, because he's as he described, like he and his wife are barely surviving as they go through this period when their two daughters are screaming all the time. Uh, you, on the other hand. No excuse. No, excuse. no not at all. <laughs> um, my question for you is what's up with this Carlos Correa? thing why did he go to the twins why did he opt out can you just explain for people at home that might not be as in tune with this i'm confused a little bit yeah so he you know he hit free agency in the spring or he you know he he was a free agent last fall if you remember we had those uh you know spat of days spate of days in which there were a number of high profile free agent signings before the lockout began right Mm -hmm. and we locked down well like a game musical chairs um carlos didn't have a seat to sit in. He hadn't signed anywhere long-term. We came out of the lockout. It was a truncated spring. Teams were somewhat aggressive, but the market wasn't the same. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, and, and Carlos had changed agents, uh, you know, dur- I think during the lockout and then moved to Scott Boris, um, you know, he basically decided, you know what, I just need to find a landing place for this year at a high salary. So he signed with the Twins. It was an, And as soon as you heard, there was an opt-out in the contract after the first right. year. It was a three-year, $105.3 million deal. You knew he was going to leave. The only yeah. question was whether or not, uh, you know, I, I, I do think it was almost like an insurance policy where, you know, the reason why I took a three-year deal was because if he got hurt during the course of the year, then at least he was guaranteed the 105.3. Mm-hmm. But he went out, he hit 355 in September, and he's, uh, you know, primed and ready to go into free agency. And I think there'll be a broader range of bidders for him this winter. Mm, like the Baltimore Orioles, for sure. <laughs> right. Sure. Well, and, you know, I've actually seen people uh, theorize that because, yeah. you know, Mike Elias, who, as you know, had a baseball operations with the Orioles, was with the Astros when they drafted Carlos Correa. So that's one team to watch. I think that'll, <laughs> Taylor, and I'm, I'm putting air quotes up <laughs> yeah. here as I yeah. use this word. That's when we'll find out if they're actually going to spend significant money yeah. Because I, I, until they actually go out and sign players and spend money, I, that word to me is going to be pretty empty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wants to. Uh, but we'll see. Yeah, but he, that would be a perfect move right there, right? Oh, if oh, you're yeah. the 
He's because he's an excellent defender. He's 28 years old. All that and Hembo laid out. Maybe Carlos Correa will wind up with yours. My question would be whether or not Carlos wants that because I think he <laughs> wants to play in a big market. Yeah, yeah. It seems it was- he, he's a bright lights guy. Uh, and I think he, you know, if he became the next Derek Jeter, I don't think that would break his heart yeah. in terms of his marketing. <laughs> okay, there we go. Thank you for that. Let's go to Billy Flanagan. He writes, and do Major League Baseball players that aren't playing in the World Series get free tickets, or is it considered a faux pas to go if your team is eliminated? Yeah, well, we had that conversation with Alex Cora earlier in the week about how some people, if their team is eliminated, they shut it down. Mm-hmm. You know, they 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 don't watch because uh, they they it, you know they're heartbroken or they're just not interested. There are some who go. I've had a couple of instances through the year. I remember Stephen Souza, the outfielder, um, you know, going down the stairway in Washington during the 2019 World Series, and this guy's walking in front of me, and he's really big, and I'm like, "Hey." Hey, Steven, <laughs> like, what are you doing here? And I've had that situation. So some players are fans and love to go to the World Series, even if their team's not in it. Last tweet for the week, Senior B, Senior Betley writes in, I know it is too soon, but if the Padres beat the Mets, Dodgers, Braves, and Astros, would that be the greatest World Series run? And would you sell the family farm? Yeah, so for the record, I have sold the family farm. Uh, you know, went through a divorce. And as part of that, you know, I, I sold, I sold the family farm. I sold it to my brother. My mom is buried, uh-huh. uh, is buried on that land and it will always stay within the family. Uh, so my brother, uh, bought it and my portion of it that I owned actually was right across from uh, a portion that's owned by my sister. So it all stayed within mm-hmm. the family, but right. I've already sold the family farm. <laughs> All right. That does it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching this fabulous slate of games this weekend. Thanks for writing in, everyone. That's it for today. That's it for this week. My thanks to Rabbi, Sarah, Hembo, Mandy, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.